We're going to be in the book of Luke this morning, chapter 4, verses 20 through 30. And he rolled up his scroll, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your, in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of, of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So Jesus is in the, na in the, in the synagogue in Nazareth. I like to imagine it was sort of story time with Jesus. It was kind of like it was vacation Bible school, but Jesus was the teacher. And basically the, the culmination of the Bible story I don't know that he was using flannel graphs. We would expect that he was. Uh, at the culmination of the Bible story, uh, they, they try to kill him. That's an interesting response. I've taught a few Bible stories to a few VBS groups. I've had a few strange responses. I've never been dragged out of town uh, to be murdered. So I was kind of wondering, what is it about Naaman? That when Jesus brought him up, they wanted to kill him. So that's really where we're going to be today. That's 2 Kings 5. So you can make your way over to 2 Kings 5 if you want. We're going to look at God's unexpected kindness. God's unexpected kindness. Kindness is very popular today. In fact, one major healthcare company is using it as their logo on their television advertising. Hello, human kindness, if you've seen this on their ads. Like, apparently, we need to advertise that we're kind. I would like to assume you are, but, you know, apparently, we need to advertise and tell people that we're kind. We like the idea of kindness. In fact, let's take a poll. Who likes kindness? Let's raise our hand. Who, who's into kindness? Right, I'm about to make you a liar. I'm sorry. That was, this isn't nice. We like kindness, and we're going to discover this in Naaman's life. We like kindness until kindness is extended to someone we don't think should have kindness extended to them. We like the idea of kindness, and of course we want everybody to be kind to us, until that one person has kindness extended to them, we say, whoa, wait a minute. we got to draw the line somewhere. And that's exactly what got the people of Nazareth all riled up. So let's look at Naaman's life in 2 Kings Chapter 5, God's unexpected kindness. Naaman was a commander in the army of the king of Syria. Syria was an enemy of the people of Israel. This was after the civil war, so when we're referring to Israel, we're, we're referring to the northern ten tribes of Israel. 
At the same time, we have the southern tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin, often called Judah in your Bible. In this case, we're talking about Israel, or sometimes in your Bible, the northern tribes are referred to as Samaria, which is the capital of the northern tribes of Israel. So the enemy of Israel is Syria. Where is Syria during this time period? Thankfully, to keep it easy, it's in basically the same place it is now, north to the east of Israel just a bit. And Naaman was a commander in the Syrian army. Look, though, at this guy in verse 1. Here's what it says. He was a great man with his master in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. What? Did you pay attention? The Lord gave victory to who? Syria. Why? Because that's exactly what God said he would do. He told the people of Israel, you are to worship me and me alone. If you choose to abandon worship of me and worship other gods or worship other gods in addition to worshiping me, I will send enemy armies in to invade you to prompt you to return to me. So all God is doing in Syria is exactly what he told the people of Israel he would do because they had abandoned God and worshiped all kinds of different gods. They worshiped the God of Israel when that was convenient, especially around the feasts. You know, it's time for the Feast of Tabernacles, where it's basically a giant camping trip for the whole country. We're all in. We're going to eat and drink for a week while camping? Let's do it. But when they need to have more children, they worship the God of fertility. And when they need more crops, they worship the God of crops. When they need more rain, they worship the God of rain. When they need their TV reception to come in, they worship the God of antennas. I'm just trying to make sure you're still awake. This is what they did. They worshiped lots of gods. And God said, no, no, no. There's only one God. I'm God. You worship me alone. If you're not going to, I'm going to use Syria to invade you. And Naaman was one of these guys God was using to invade uh, Israel. Naaman had something else going for him. He was a leper. We don't know how much leprosy he had based on the, what happens in the account. It sounds like he had a bit of leprosy. A bit of leprosy is about as bad as a lot of leprosy. But it sounds like he had a bit of leprosy on his hand. But either way, if you got leprosy, a bit or a lot, you're a leper. So he had a bad thing going on. Then we find out there's someone else in his household, another character in this story that remains nameless. And this part of the story is tragic, terribly tragic. What would happen is the Syrians would send raiding parties into Israel. Why? That's what they did on the weekends. I don't know. They went in and they would take their stuff and they would take their people. They wanted their stuff and their people. So they would go in and they would take their gold. They would take their oxen. They would take their sheep. They would take their goats. And if somebody looked like they could be of use, they would kidnap their people. And then the people they took their stuff from, they may leave them alive destitute or more than likely they would kill them. We discover that in Naaman's household was a little girl from Israel who had been kidnapped on one of these raids. What do we call that nowadays if someone is stolen and sold into labor? We call that human trafficking, right? That's exactly what this is, and don't try and dress it up to be okay with it. It's not okay. This little girl was taken from her family. We have no reason to think she ever saw any of her family again. And she discovers that her uh, mistress's husband, because she worked for Naaman's wife, she discovers that Naaman has leprosy. And so this little girl 
says to her boss, you know what? Naaman, if he lived in Samaria, could go to the prophet, he'd heal him. He'd take care of that little problem. No big deal. So this little girl who has been kidnapped is telling Naaman and his wife all about what God does in Israel. And so so Naaman said, you know, that sounds like a good idea. I like the idea of being healed of leprosy. Apparently there's a guy in Israel who does that. I'm going to go to Israel. So he goes to his boss, the king of Syria, and says, do you mind if I go to Israel and see the prophet and get healed of my leprosy? And the king of Syria says, that sounds like a great idea. I want lepers leading my army. Why don't you go get that fixed, man? And so the king of Syria writes him a letter. I'll even write you a reference letter. That's what the king of Syria does. Writes him a reference letter and sends him to, who's he send him to? Anybody know the story? Send him to the prophet? Nope. Sends him to the king. Why does the king of Syria send the army guy to the king of Israel and not to the prophet? I don't know if you know any big honchos in your life. Maybe you are a big honcho. I don't know. Big honchos hang out with big honchos. They don't want to hang around with prophets. Prophets don't bathe. They don't shave. They eat gross stuff. What they are wearing, if they're wearing anything, read Isaiah. That's an interesting story. Now you're interested. Google it. They're wearing uh, camel's clothes or, or underwear they haven't changed in three years. That's Jeremiah. You can read that one too. They're always doing stuff that's weird. He's not going to go to Elisha. The other thing about Elisha, I don't know if you've read the Old Testament, Elisha is in a bad mood. He is in a good mood. Never. Elisha is surly and grumpy. Why? Because the people of Israel have abandoned the worship of God. So they want to go to the king because big, powerful people talk to big, powerful people. They're not going to negotiate with a prophet. They're going to get the king on their side because the king will tell the prophet what to do. That's what big honchos do. So Naaman went, talked to his lord, and they got together a big collection of stuff to go to the king of Israel. Look at the end of verse 5, beginning of a paragraph. It tells us what he takes with him. He went to the king of Israel and he took 10 talents of silver. That's a lot. 6,000 shekels of gold. That's a lot. And 10 changes of clothing. Why did Naaman take 10 changes of clothing? Because he knew he would get there and he didn't know what he'd be into. He'd wake up that morning. I don't know what I want to wear. No, that wasn't it. Most people at that time, unless you were very wealthy, most people at that time had one, maybe two changes of clothing. He's taking the clothing as payment along with all of the money. That many sets of clothing is an extraordinary treasure trove that he's taking with him. Why is Naaman taking all of this stuff with him? The way you get miracles from prophets is you pay them. That's how it works. To get God to do stuff, you do stuff to impress him, and then God does his stuff. That's how every God works, and this is what, how Naaman is operating. And so he goes to the king of Israel with his load of treasure to convince God to do what he wants, heal his leprosy, because that's how it works. He gives the king his letter. This is verse 6 of 2 Kings 5. Here's the letter that the king of Syria wrote to the king of Israel. When this letter reaches you, Know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. That's all. What? I mean, how, as the king of Israel, how do you think he responds? Well, you don't have to guess because it's in there. He rips his clothing. 
What does it mean when you tear your clothing back in those times? It means you're very upset. It means you're, you're mourning. You rip your clothing to show you're extraordinarily upset, saddened, in mourning. He doesn't know how to heal le- people of leprosy. If he knew how to heal people of leprosy, would there be any lepers in Israel? No. They're a pain. They can't work because they have to be outside the city. He'd heal all the lepers and put them to work. He can't heal lepers, and he's extraordinarily upset. Look what he says. Am I God? Can I make alive? This man sends word of me to cure him of his leprosy? Look, he's, he's looking to make a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel thinks this must be a political move. King of Syria sends his head honcho general to be healed of leprosy, and if the king of Israel doesn't heal his head honcho general, what's Syria going to do? We're going to invade. We're going to take revenge because you didn't heal our guy. So the king of Israel just assumes they must be picking a quarrel to start a war. That's what's going on. So what we have here is two people who don't understand God. The two people are Naaman and the king of Israel. Here's what Naaman understands about God. Naaman understands this about God. You can get God to do what you want if you know what the price is. You can get God to do what you want if you know what the price is. And now all, everybody has all kinds of different ideas of what that price ought to be. And throughout history, you can look at what those kinds of things ought to be. It could be animal sacrifice. Some cultures had offer human sacrifice. You could be like Naaman here and think it's just money. I can buy God's favor by donating money or giving money to a priest or a prophet. Uh, I can earn God's favor. Nowadays, we do it uh, differently. We say we've got to be nice to people or we donate money to charity. Uh, the popular notion of buying God's favor is a word we use often. It's called karma. Who's heard of this? It's just, if I'm good to people, the universe is going to be good to me. That's me trying to buy the favor of some unnamed God by being good to people. And that's the same as what Naaman was doing. Naaman had this view of God. It was a mistake that you can get God to do what you want if you know the price. The other guy in the room was also had a relationship with God and also had his relationship with God based on wrong information. That's the king of Israel. The king of Israel understood this about God. He's a jerk. He never does what you want. He can't be bothered. We're forever needing him to protect us from the Syrians, to protect us from famine, to protect us from disease, to protect us from people like Elisha, annoying. And God can't be bothered to help us out. So, so you have Naaman, who really stands in in many ways for religious people, saying, I can earn God's favor by doing, buying, giving. And you have, you have the king of Israel who stands in for those of us who says, listen, I've lived life in the real world. God can't be bothered to be involved. I, I know how the real world works. I know what real life is like. And if you think God is going to be involved, and he rips his clothes. God can't be bothered to help me out. He's never helped out before. Why would he help out now? So this is fantastic. Maybe you've been a part of small groups like this. We have two people in a Bible study, and neither one of them know anything about God. And they're not helping each other out. So what happens? What is God's response to this? What happens to Naaman? What happens to Naaman, in my opinion, is absolutely incredible. This is, this is stunning, and hopefully I can show you how stunning it is. Hopefully you won't think it's so stunning that you want to throw me off a cliff, but stunning nonetheless. Elisha heard what was going on. Remember grumpy prophet Elisha? 
He says, king of Israel, simmer down, bro. Send him on down. I can make an opening in my calendar this afternoon. So Naaman wanders down to Elisha's house with all of his caravan, all of his camels, all of his donkeys, all of his servants, comes trampicing down with all, he's probably got people blowing trumpets and whatnot. He shows up at Elisha's front door. Elisha sends out his junior, just started, wet behind the ears intern. Go tell, uh, what's his name? Oh, Naaman. Tell Naaman to dip seven times in the Jordan River. So this servant goes out to Naaman and says, Elisha is really, really busy. He's He's got a really cool house he's building on Minecraft. And some of you don't know what that is. Google it. Um, and he doesn't want to get up. He's also tired. And also just between you and me, he's grumpy. Uh, so go dip seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be fine. And Naaman, what does Naaman do? Blows a gasket. He loses his mind. Why does Naaman get upset that Elisha told him to dip seven times in the river? Why? That's not how God works. I buy God. I get to decide how this transaction is worked. I'm in charge. Naaman's always been in charge. He's in charge about what's to go down. I know what goes down. He comes out. He waves over my hand, does some magic, hocus pocus, maybe does some chanting, maybe a little dancing, maybe juggles some chainsaws. I don't know what he will do. Uh, And maybe he will send me on a mighty act of valor. I, that would be another thing that maybe he should do is tell Naaman, Naaman, go to this city that's been bothering us and destroy our enemy. And when you return, you will have earned the favor of God and I'll knight you, Sir Naaman. None of this happens and drives Naaman bonkers. In fact, he says this, don't we have rivers in, in Syria? Like if I need a bath, in fact, between you and me, Elisha, but who needs a bath is not Naaman, probably Elisha. Why can't I just dip myself in the rivers in Syria? Why do I have to dip myself in the Jordan River? How, why would that bother him? Number one, he's from Syria and he's anti-Semitic. Number two, the Jordan River is, it's kind of a slow moving river at times. I don't know if you've been in it. It has a, a particular, well, it smells like catfish. At least it does now. Maybe it was a fresher body of water back then. I don't know. But I would, I would offer this as a suggestion. Any river that terminates in something called a Dead Sea, probably not the freshest body of water. And you can imagine Naaman going, in that water? Because I'm going to need to dip seven times in something else after getting in that. And he's nuts. He goes crazy. He doesn't want to do it. Finally, one of his servants comes up to him and says, listen, listen, listen. He could have asked you to do anything. Why not just give it a shot? And Naaman collects himself. You know, you're right. You're right. I'll do it. So he goes in dips himself seven times, and what does it say happens to him? This is, I'm going to read it so, so I get it right because I love how he, how he says it. Uh, verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan River. I don't know if he was a Baptist. I don't know if he went full immersion, or I don't know anything about that. He went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan River according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. The modern rendering was, his skin was as soft as a baby's bottom. He probably was, wow, that is so cool, because the rest of him was like still nasty, right? And he's got this leprosy spot. Wow, that is like a baby. Feel that, guys. And the guy's like, yeah, that's weird, Naaman. Um, 
So he's, he's restored. How does he respond when he is restored? This is, what is really, this is the part that nearly got Jesus killed. He went back to the man of God. There's the key verse of this whole narrative. This is verse 15. This is what he says. Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but Israel. So his response to God's kindness is worship. Because God healed a pompous, arrogant, short-tempered racist with no expectations, with no demands. God just healed him. And, and God just healed him. Why? Because God is kind. And when Naaman experienced the kindness of God, he worshiped. He said, oh, there is no other God. There are two powerful people in Israel at this moment. There's the king of Israel. Does the king of Israel believe that the God of Israel is God alone? No, we know that. The king of Israel worships all kinds of gods. This Syrian standing in Israel says, I know who is God. There is only one God, and it is the God of Israel. That is called worship. By faith, he experienced the kindness of God and said, I worship this kind God. He then wanted to give a gift to the prophet, and of course, the prophet refused. So in the absence of a gift, Naaman asks the prophet for something. This will blow your mind. This is what nearly got Jesus killed. He asked for two things. First thing, I want some dirt. That's weird. Some of you maybe do that when you go on vacation. You collect little mason jars of sand from this beach and dirt from this mountain. I don't know. He wanted a, a mule load of dirt. Because when he got to Syria, he wanted to build an altar to worship the God of Israel. And he only wanted to do it on Israel dirt. That's a problem. Where do you worship the God of Israel? At the tabernacle. Where else do you worship the God of Israel? Nowhere else. In fact, the people of Israel almost went into civil war at one point. There was three, two and a half tribes of Israel that were on the east side of the Jordan River. And they built a model of the altar of the tabernacle. It's the end of the book of Joshua. They built a model of it. Because they wanted to remind themselves and the people on the other side of the Jordan River that they too were people of Israel and they worshipped at the tabernacle. They weren't going to use the altar. They weren't going to sacrifice on it. It was a model to remind everybody we're part of the people of Israel. When the other people of Israel saw that model, they went to invade them and destroy them because they were worried they were going to worship somewhere other than the tabernacle. Naaman says... I want to worship God on Jewish dirt in Syria. Okay? What's the next thing he asked for? This will bother you even more. He says, listen, my boss, the king of Syria, he worships at this false god, Ramon. I don't know if it's Ramon or Ramon or Ramon. I like Ramon because it sounds cool. So he goes into worship, and I've got to hold his arm because he's an old man. And so I take him into this temple to a false god, and he worships there, and I have to bow down with him because i got to help him up and help him down. Hey, Elisha, when I go into this false god's temple to help my master worship a false god, is that okay? And what does Elisha say to him? 
Now, listen, bro, we've got to draw the line somewhere. No, look what he says. Look at your Bible. Verse 19, Elisha said to him, what? Go in peace. Go in peace. You're fine. Why is he fine? Because he recognizes there is one God in Israel. He understands the grace of God. He understands the kindness of God. Go in peace. You have found God, God of kindness and grace. Just a couple of things before we get back to Jesus and try and figure out why, again, why people got so riled up. Two things I just want to point out between Naaman and the king of Israel. These are the two obstacles to finding the kindness of God. The reason I bring them up is because they're so common. Uh, basically, I think one, most of us just are either picking one or have a combination of both. First thing that helps us avoid the kindness of God or miss the kindness of God is religion. That's kind of where Naaman was. I know how God works. I know what you have to do to get God to be nice. You've got to pay him off. And that always, we always miss the kindness of God. Because in that transaction, God isn't kind. He's a contractor. Right? If you have to pay somebody to do something, aren't they a contractor? So what you're doing is you're contracting out your deity. Say, listen, I've got an idea. Let's drop a contract. I'm going to pay you X amount of dollars, give you X amount of time, and pray before meals. I need you to show up and make sure I don't get sick. That's not, that's not him being kind. That's him fulfilling the obligations of his job. Well, think about it. Have you ever had a contractor work in your home or in your business? Like, do you thank them for their kindness after they fulfill the duties of their contract? You give them a big hug? Maybe you do. I don't know. I, I would find that strange. No, you, no, you fulfilled the deal of your contract? Good for you. Thank you. God here is not fulfilling the, the uh, contractual obligations. He's just being kind to Naaman. Naaman nearly missed it because of his religious predispositions. The other hand, you've got, you've got many of us like, who are like the king of Israel. I know what God is like because I know what life is like, and life, I don't know how to say it different. Life sucks. It's a pain. It hurts. People are mean. The world is mean. My body is falling apart. The economy is terrible. My job is awful. The relationships in my life are a train wreck. Everything is a pain, and the source of that difficulty is this so-called deity, I cannot believe in a God who would give me a life like this. Both of these situations result in us missing the kindness of God because we've looked to the wrong sources for our information about God. Naaman had his eyes opened by his healing to recognize that by faith he can have his hope restored by trusting in God. And his, his faith was demonstrated in his worship by recognizing that God is Lord of all. In fact, I might even say this about Naaman. He was able to rest in God's kindness, excuse me, even in the realities of the fact that his life wasn't perfect yet. I mean, he sort of admits, uh, I mean, let me put it this way. I'm trying to think of ways to offend you. Um, Billy Graham preaches, George Beverly Shea plays, just come as I am, the buses will wait, you walk down, you pray the prayer, and then you yell up to Billy, you know, I don't know if I can quite give up the demon worship. Are we good? I mean, I'm saved. But, I, you know, I got a few hang-ups. See, you're bothered by that, aren't you? 
Of course you are. That seems out of line. That, and that's not precisely what Naaman was asking for, but I would say this. Naaman was able to, in this moment, recognize God's kindness to such a degree he could be comfortable with the reality his life isn't perfect yet and not even close. And he could rest in God's kindness that, no, I don't have it dialed in. I don't know how to, to, to align the complexities of my broken life with the realities of God yet. And Elisha said, go in peace. God's going to be with you. Okay, let's go back to Luke chapter 4, verse 20 through 30. Is that okay? We're doing it anyway. Luke chapter 4, verses 20 and 30. So Jesus, of course, is telling this story. He, is, he had read from the book of Isaiah to his uh, friends and family in the town of Nazareth where he had grown up. Everybody was pleased with Jesus, but Jesus hadn't performed as many miracles there as he had done in Capernaum. And Jesus points out the fact that they were expecting something from him, but they were, were having trouble seeing it because they were familiar with Jesus. Jesus had grown up uh, in their hometown. And Jesus' point with telling them about Naaman was basically this, that Naaman has as close a relationship with God as the people of Israel have with God. And the people of Nazareth did not like that because Naaman was a Syrian. So in God's unexpected kindness, Naaman responds with worship. But when God shows his kindness, the people of Israel respond with rebellion. Because they say, we want a kind God, God who is kind to us, not Syrians. And the reason that they would have been really upset by this, if God could be that nice to Syrians, how nice would he be to Romans? What if God starts forgiving Romans? What if Pilate gets saved? They don't want Pilate saved. They want Pilate to burn in hell. He had killed Galileans and then mixed the blood of the Galileans in with the offerings of the people of Israel. That's how messed up this guy was. And the people of Israel were like, we don't need a God who is going to be kind to our enemies. We need a God who is kind to us and who will smite our enemies. And because they saw God's kindness extended to others, they became enraged. And they wanted to kill Jesus. They don't want a Savior who saves other sinners who sin differently than them. As one author says, there's nothing so annoying as someone who sins different than us. God's kindness, Jesus makes clear, is extended to everyone. Everyone can receive it by faith. And that is his whole point. In the Old Testament, for the most part, the people of Israel rejected the Messiah, the coming Messiah, but Naaman didn't. And the people of Nazareth want a Jewish Messiah only, a Messiah that fits their expectations. Let's look at one other verse. This is Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you don't mind, I'm going to read all 11 verses. I don't think I have them. Do I have them up there? Oh, that's exciting. Good. Here's what it says in Romans 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, you have no excuse. The you here basically is religious people. You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge, uh, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. 
Why does the author of Romans assume that religious judges do the same things as those they judge? Because Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, I mean, that everybody's a sinner. That's the assumption. So when we're judging someone, we're obviously coming from a place of hypocrisy because we're all sinners. Verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. The people of Israel wanted God's kindness to lead him to destroy their enemies. But God's kindness is designed to do what? Move me and you to repentance. Verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourself. So what God is calling for in his kindness to Naaman was repentance. And what did Naaman do after God's kindness was shown? He repented. That's what he said in that verse. There's only one God. It's the God of Israel. He is rejecting all other gods. That's called repentance. The, what God's kindness is designed to do is to open up our hearts to the kindness of God that we would have the room to say, I agree with you, God. I need forgiveness. I need your grace. I'm a sinner. I worship all kinds of stuff. His kindness is, move, is to move in us that we might reach out to him for forgiveness through repentance. Look down at uh, verse 11 of Romans chapter 2. I'll start reading in verse, uh, well, verse 9, 10, and 11. There will be tribulation, tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. God shows no partiality. God looks at the human heart and says, if you want to experience peace of God forever, your heart must be righteous. The only way to experience righteousness in our hearts is to have Christ's righteousness be applied to us. That's done by faith. That is done by faith. We call that repentance turning to God, admitting we need forgiveness, and receiving from him by faith the righteousness of Christ. And God shows no partiality. Either you have Christ and are righteous, or you do not. But God's kindness is designed to lead us to repentance. A couple of other things just to touch on, then, uh, then we'll close in a song. I think I've said this before, so it's worth mentioning again, I think. God is an equal opportunity offender. If you haven't been offended by God recently, you're not reading your Bible right. I might say it that way. Here's how he offends our sensibilities. For religious people, we think his grace goes too far. If you're really good at keeping your nose clean, if you're really good at avoiding the really naughty stuff, or if you're at least really good at hiding it better than most, what offends us is when some really serious sinner gets grace and they clearly have peace with God. Doesn't that drive you bonkers? Or maybe it's this way. You know somebody has problems in their life, maybe uh, all kinds of problems they might have, and God is blessing their socks off. Their kids are successful. Their business is successful. Everything they do turns to gold. It drives you bonkers. God, why aren't you mean to them and nice to me? You're kind to that guy. He doesn't read his Bible. I read my Bible every day. I mean, I hate it, but I read it every day. 
Why can't you be nice to me? So God offends that religious sentiment that somehow God is obligated to be nice to me because I've been good? Really? No. God is intending to offend that we, that we might seek his kindness by his grace. On the other hand, God also offends those of us who get the reality of who we think God is by the experience of our life. If we're defining who God is by whether our life is good or not good, God is saying, you're missing the information about me. You can't define who God is by what's going on in your life. And God is gladly willing to offend us by saying, no, look at my word. I'll show you what I'm like. And who I am is true regardless of the experience of your life. So we have God's kindness that is shown to all of us. And we have two ways we can respond to his kindness. It can prompt us to worship through repentance or it can move us to rebel against him because we reject the kind of kindness he has. Let me ask you a couple of things as a way of maybe thinking through this a little bit, and then we'll close. Uh, first question. You ready? Well, I can wait. I mean, let me know when you're good to go. Why would God spend an afternoon with you? Say you have an afternoon free, and God has an afternoon free. Why would God spend an afternoon with you? What would motivate him? Let me just I don't know how you think about that, but let me give you two observations. If your answer starts with, because I, you don't know God very well yet. If your answer starts with, because God is kind, we're on to something. That's the idea here. Why would God spend the afternoon with me? It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with whether or not he is kind. God would spend an afternoon with us just because he is that Kind. Okay, next question. I'm, I have not yet begun to annoy you. Here we go. Think of three things in your life. Are you ready? Don't say them out loud. I want to make sure I say that first. In the first service, I didn't say that to start. Think of three things in your life right now you know God wants to be different. Three things right now. List them off. You know God wants that fixed. Like when does he want it fixed? Ten years ago. You got them? Okay, now think of one thing. That, that God is totally okay with. I'll give you more time. Why is that harder? Have you thought about it? And of course, some of you thought of like 10 things. Oh, I got 10 things that God is totally impressed with. That's fine. That's a different sermon. But many of us, when I say, think, tell me one thing that God is totally okay with, you, you draw a total blank. And, and the question is, why is it hard to imagine that there are things that God is like, no, I made that about you. That is, that's precisely what I want you to be like. Why is that difficult? And the reason is this, we think God is mean. We can't imagine that God is actually kind, that he looks upon us. All we imagine when God sees us is he's just got this laundry list of things we got to work on. We couldn't imagine that he would show up to spend an afternoon with us because there are hundreds and hundreds of things about us that he just enjoys being around. And the reason that's hard to do is because for some reason we've been sold a bill of goods that tells us God isn't very nice. He's kind of mean when the reality is when we look at his word, especially in the life of Naaman, God is kind. And his kindness moves us to respond in faith. Jesus died and Jesus is raised. And this is the uh, pinnacle work of God's kindness 
to us. Because of his kindness in Christ, worship is to respond in repentance. One last thing. The gospel is designed to tell us about God, not merely about us. When I say the gospel, you're a sinner and you need to get saved. A lot of times in our hearts, we're going to think the gospel is designed to tell me I'm a sinner. It does do that. More than that, though, and more importantly than that, I would suggest, the gospel tells us what God is like. He's kind to sinners that they might repent and seek forgiveness and grace. God's unexpected kindness prompts worship, elicits rebellion. My prayer would be is, number one, we would be finally convinced God is kind, and number two, it would move us to worship through repentance and faith.